were walking to the village Emmaus. They were deep in conversation. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were unable to recognize who he was. Tell me, friends, what are you discussing? The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet. He worked miracles and spoke with such power and authority. We had our hopes up that he was the Messiah who was foretold, the one about to deliver Israel. But he's been arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. It all seems hopeless now. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. I will establish the throne of David's line forever. His house and his kingdom will endure forever before me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. There before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Open-eyed, wide-eyed, the two men recognized Jesus. He was the one who was foretold. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. I'm very glad you're with us. If you're in the East Auditorium, I was just in there. We've got a great crowd in there today. I'm very glad you're with us. It's good to maybe do some chicken wing hellos to everybody over there, as I was able to do that a few minutes ago. To everybody here in the West, great to see you as well, as well as everybody online. And uh, we've got a cr quite a crowd gathering with us online. I'm very glad you're with us as well. Let me introduce myself for those who are guests. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. We're going to spend some time today looking at the book of Isaiah. If you'll grab your Bible, please, or maybe your smartphone, and look at Isaiah chapter 9 is where we'll start. Then we'll get to chapter 11 pretty quickly. Uh, so it's more or less in the middle of the Bible if you'll go there. To, uh, while you're looking for Isaiah 9 and 11, um, perhaps a, a, a brief story, if, if I may, to get us started uh, about a guy uh, that I know. He's, he, he was... Um, it's about a little shy of five foot ten, 160 pounds or so. Well, we'll, we'll probably better say 170 pounds. Well, we'd probably, probably say more like 180 say, say on his driver's license, 175 pounds. We'll just call it that. How's that okay? Kind of a, well, 62 years of age. No, actually closer to 63. Uh, likes people, some life experience, some graying hair. Uh, fairly deep spirituality that people appreciate. And um, 
He's a musician uh, now and then in, reg in addition to some other roles he has in life, a leader, and the people around him. You know how the people around him describe him? This is an interesting thing. The people around him describe him as um, ruddy and handsome. That's what they call him, ruddy and handsome. They get together and they go, look at that fellow over there. He is ruddy and he is handsome. I'm sure that's what they say. And this guy, you, you know what's most interesting about him? One day God decided he should be king. And as it turned out, he was the greatest king of human history. Now I need to tell you, none of that story is true except the ruddy and handsome part. And being the king, probably the greatest king of all human history. The story I'm really telling you about is the story of a thousand years before Jesus was born. A young man who was, the scriptures describe him as ruddy and handsome. He became the king. Here's how it went. The prophet Samuel in the nation of Israel a thousand years before Jesus was born. The prophet Samuel was instructed to name a new king for the nation of Israel. And he knew uh, through some word from God that the king was going to be one of the sons of a fellow by the name of Jesse. I want you to remember that name, Jesse. And Jesse lived in a little village just outside Jerusalem, a village called Bethlehem. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem to find Jesse and wants to meet all of Jesse's sons to see which one is going to be the king. And this is how it reads. Samuel saw Eliab. We have reason to believe that Eliab was probably the oldest. There were maybe other sons who were dead, but he's the oldest one living. And Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. Now, we don't know if he was tall or if he was short, but there was something about him that made him look different than other people, perhaps. And the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward heart. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. So they said, okay, well, that, that's, that kid's not the one. Let's bring the next one in. Jesse called Abinadab. He passed in front of Samuel who said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord, mm-mm, this isn't them. So he asked Jesse, are these, are these, is this everybody? I was quite certain that there was going to be a king amongst one of your sons. And is there anybody else? And well, there is the youngest, the guy... He's, he's really quite young, and he's out, he's out tending the sheep. You know, that's what little, little young teenagers do in agrarian cultures. The teenagers take, teenage boys took care of the sheep in that culture. And Samuel said, send for him. We won't sit down till he arrives. This is so important, we're going to stand here till he gets here. So he sent for David. Jesse sent for David and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, and he had a, Scripture puts it this way, a fine, ruddy, and handsome feature. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So before we get into David, just a brief aside, if I may. He's a young man, late teens, early 20s, a musician with a deep spirituality. We know of the book of Psalms. He wrote 73 of the Psalms that we have, the Psalter, the songs of the people of Israel. And if you're a young person today, either here in the room in the East Auditorium, online, I want you to be, make note of this. Your age does not preclude the fact that God's going to work through you. As a matter of fact, maybe it's a great time for God to work for you. The scriptures put it this way. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. When you're young, 
These are your formative years. And Scripture says you can have a huge influence on other people. And that was certainly the case for David. He didn't get to be king right away. It was a period of time in before he became king. But once he was assigned this task and this responsibility, this calling that he was going to be king, he was off to the races. He never looked back. And under his leadership, the nation of Israel never looked back either. It's fair to say that David was the greatest king of all human history. Israel thrived under his spirit-led leadership. Their military prowess their economic power, their, their, their um, international relationships, all the nations around them, they were the leaders. And all was well in the life of Israel when David was king. Now, he reigned for 30 years. And after his death in 970 B.C., the nation began to decline in those areas of military prowess and economic power. Spiritual fervor, their own spirituality began to go down. And eventually... The story we read in Scripture is this, that eventually a crisis or a series of crises came along in the life of the nation until eventually um, they lost their independence. They were overrun by a series of different nations, first of all by the Assyrians in 721, then by the Babylonians, then by the Greeks, then by the Romans, then by the Crusaders, then by the Turks. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I would suggest, in fact, that after King David... The Jewish story is one of crisis after crisis culminating in the 1940s Holocaust and then being restored in 1948 when Israel, when the Jewish people were given ownership of the land that they occupy today, going back more than 3,000 years. In the midst of each of those crises, within the scriptures time, Each time a crisis comes along, a note or a prophetical word comes up that there's going to be a change, there's going to be better days ahead, and there's going to be a Messiah, a Savior who's going to come along. And Scripture indicates that God is interested in bringing peace and order to David's nation and actually going to restore David's throne, and you wonder how that's going to be. God plans for that throne to be established again. See, as I said last week, the Jewish prophets come up from time to time throughout the Scriptures in the midst of these crises, And they point out God's intention that the nation has a long-term viability and the nation is going to be secure. Israel is going to be secure. And those intentions on God's part include God calling the nation to repentance and the promise of delivery through a Messiah. Those prophecies were usually set within the context of a crisis. And throughout Lent here, if you were with us last week, you know that we are working our way through some of these crises and through some of these prophecies where they all point to Jesus Christ as the answer to each of the crises and as the fulfillment of each prophecy. We're doing this throughout Lent. Our Lenten focus in 21 is this. A crisis? What's the prophecy got to say about it in the middle of it? And then how is Jesus the answer to that? And so last week we began in Isaiah chapter 9, and we focused on Jesus' work in our lives as the Prince of Peace. And that same prophecy also talks about David's throne and his reign lasting forever. Let's go back, just pick up the verse where we we were last week. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. And then this son, this Jesus who has already been born, has four titles, wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And then the prophecy goes on beyond that and says this of Jesus. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. How's this going to occur? Well, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So you have this understanding of what we looked at last week. You have these titles of Jesus, and then you have this understanding that once Jesus is born and he's given these titles, then he's going to have this government that will never end, and you probably have a legitimate question. If, if this throne of David is going to be, uh, if he's going to be sitting on David's throne, how does that work? How, what's, what's the connection between Jesus and David? After all, this is written in, nine, in, in, in 740, okay, 230 years after David has died. Isaiah 9, it's a couple centuries after David is dead. And by this time, by the time you get to Isaiah 9, David's royal bloodline is completely messed up. The throne is under constant tax. 740 B.C., the Assyrians are at the, at the border, if you will. And 19 years after this was written, the Assyrians run in, and they literally annihilate, they kill, literally kill 10 of the 12 tribe family units, um, probably around 3 million people, wiped out, killed. I'd probably have to go back and think about that 3 million a little bit more. I just said that off the top of my head. It's a, it's, we know that by the time Jesus came along, there were 3 million people there. So you've, you've lost a significant number of people. They literally disappeared from the historical record. So then you go, well, what's the connection between this handsome and ruddy King David and to, and to Jesus? Well, to understand that, we need to dive a little deeper into another prophecy proclaimed by Isaiah over in Isaiah chapter 11. We read this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So think about this. Jesse's family. He was the father of David, right? And uh, his son David becomes king, but then they are wiped out by the Assyrians, and so they are basically cut off. So they're a stump in the ground, if you will. And it says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is talking about Jesus coming up out of Jesse's family line, out of David's family line. And you go, well, how does that happen? A shoot from a stump? You're still asking, how is Jesus connected to David? Well, let me say, I'm so glad you asked. In Matthew chapter 1, in the New Testament, in the first biography of Jesus that we have within the New Testament, uh, Matthew graciously gives us a genealogy, a, a family tree, a bloodline of how Jesus was born. We read this in verse 5. Obed was the father of Jesse. So there's Jesse, right? That's the guy who had his sons parade in front of Samuel. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon. And it goes on from there, the father, the father, or the son of, the son of, the son of, until you get down to verse 15. Methan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of who? Joseph. Does this start to sound familiar about Jesus' story? Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In other words, in the genealogy that Scripture gives us of who was born to who, to who, to who, to whom, to whom, to whom, to whom, to whom, and so on, you have this David, and there's a direct line, generation, 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 you get to Jesus. You have then Israel at the height of glory when David is king, 
until generation, 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 bloodline, 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 DNA, DNA, DNA being passed from one person to the next until you get Jesus being born. And that is why as Christians, we call Jesus the Messiah. We believe he is the fulfillment of prophecies proclaimed hundreds of years. Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 were written 740 years before Jesus showed up. And yet here it is, all those centuries beforehand, they're saying a stump is going to come and somebody wonderful is going to come and he's going to have the fear of the Lord and he's going to have God's anointing upon him. We believe that as a member of David's bloodline, a direct descendant, Jesus fills the Old Testament claim about the Messiah coming from David's family, that Jesus is the shoot coming up out of the stump of Jesse. And by the way, we tie this to another Old Testament prophecy about David's story because David became king at 1,000 B.C. He reigned for 30 years. And toward the end of his life, as his leadership role was about to shift and pass off to his son Solomon, he heard from a prophet again. Now, remember, it was Samuel the first time that said, this is the guy who's going to be king, this young teenage kid. And now he goes through a number of years before he was named king, and then he's on the throne for 30 years. And there's a prophet involved in his life throughout much of his reign, a guy by the name of Nathan. And Nathan comes along and says to David, when your days are over, when you rest with your ancestors, in other words, when you're dead, when you're dead, when you're in the ground, when you're flat laying down, laying like this, when all that happens, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. There's going to somebody who comes behind you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That word forever throughout that passage of scripture there, it's a Hebrew word that um, means perpetual. It's a lam. It, um, remember, if you want to look at that character and that, that word to know how to, to, to read it, um, you start on the right and you read toward the left. And like that, looks, the character that looks like a square, that's the M sound. So that's the alam. And basically what Nathan is saying to David is, your kingdom is going to be perpetual. It's going to be everlasting and yet, we still have this, okay, well, if this, his kingdom is everlasting and perpetual, why isn't there a David's throne right now? I mean, the people of Israel don't have a king. They have a prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's certainly not the king there. There's all the kind of political stuff that's going on in their nation. He's, you know, his own, they, since 1948, they've had a series of different prime ministers. There's been no king in Israel. How, how come if, if, if the prophet says that David's throne is going to be last for, going to last forever, why is that not the case today? Well, let me see if I could back you up a little bit. We know some of the details of human history from the beginning of time. For example, we know that the creation is the handiwork of God. And I know people have got evolution and people have got Big Bang and people have got, is, it, is Genesis a story, a metaphor? Leaving all that aside, okay? I think we could acknowledge that creation is the handiwork of God Almighty. I want you to look at Jesus' role in the cosmos and creation. We read this in scripture that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So here's God in heaven. We don't know what God looks like. But when God comes to the earth, Jesus comes as a human being. And so he is, as we would see Jesus as a human being, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. It's through Jesus that everything was created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In other words, 
At the beginning of time, Jesus was there. Now, we know that sin took over the narrative of the human story, that death was introduced to our experience. We have things like pain and struggle and um, anguish. They became the norm. And then we know that Jesus showed up on earth again, pardon me, showed up on earth, and his ministry culminated in the defeat of sin and death. His cross forgave the sin through the shedding of his blood, and his resurrection obliterated death. And we say that's a high point in human history. But who are we kidding? Of course, in our present time, humans have continued to struggle. Sin still impacts us in our present era. Death is still a factor for all of us. It seems like, well, yeah, Jesus came and he forgave my sin and says that death is, for, is, is obliterated. But the truth of the matter is I still struggle with sin and I run into people who struggle with sin. And everyone around me at some point has died so far and the rest will die. What's going on? Well, if you get the big story of Scripture, there's something else yet to occur. Christians believe the second coming of Jesus Christ ushers in a new age where Jesus claims not only David's throne as the king of Israel, but he claims an eternal throne as the king of the cosmos. And some of you are going, and I get this. Some of you are going, Wayne, this just sounds all a little bit too fantastical. You've been reading too many of those crazy science fiction books or too many of those mystical books. What, what do you mean Jesus is coming again? And, is, and Do you have questions like that? Of course we do. But may I point out, we're talking about God here. Of course, some of God's interaction with your life is beyond your understanding. It better be beyond your understanding. Think about it this way. Would you really want to serve and honor a God who is so small that you can understand everything about God? I don't want a God that small, because my brain isn't very... I may be ready and handsome, but I don't have a very large brain. That was supposed to be funny. Some of you are not laughing, but nonetheless. I don't want a God that small. What are we talking about here? We're saying that if we are willing to believe that Jesus came and forgave sin, obliterated death then what's the big leap in believing that it'll come again? I don't see that a big leap. All I see that is an extension of faith. As Scripture states, faith is the evidence of things unseen. And people of faith say, this is what I believe according to what the Bible says. People of Christian faith, we look backwards. Those are the things we can see. We look backwards and we see God's faithfulness in history. We see God's faithfulness in our own lives. But at the same time, we anticipate glorious days ahead. What's it called? It's called faith, moving forward. I believe that God has better days ahead. Backwards is observation, and it's instruction for today. That's how we live right now, based on what we've learned in the past. But forward, that's faith. I want you to see how this faith that you have, how Scripture declares it's going to come to fruition. The Ancient of Days, the Bible says in the book of Daniel. God's clothing. This is after Jesus' second coming. God's clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This is God's throne room. God is on the throne. And there before me, we read, 
was one like a son of man coming with on the clouds of heaven. Son of man, in the next few weeks coming down the road as we look at these prophecies, we'll look at why Jesus is called the son of God. He's also called the son of man. Why is he called the son of man? Because he's got human DNA in his blood. When he's here on earth, he's the son of David's Son, 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 son. So the scripture calls him both the son of God and the son of man. And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached God, the ancient of days, and was led into his presence. And this son of man, this Jesus, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus takes over Daniel's throne as the son of Daniel, the son of the son of the son of Daniel, and the world is restored to right order for Olam, perpetually. It's a never-ending throne, different than any other monarch that we may have as human beings. We have benevolent monarchs and we have evil monarchs throughout human history. But all human reigns at some point come to an end, but Jesus' throne is Olam, it's perpetual. And friends, believe it or not, that's the introduction to today's sermon. Seriously, I had to get you that far to tell you what, how to live our lives this week. It's, um, it's basic, basic Christian theology. And here are the implications for you today. See, since Jesus has already been proclaimed king of the cosmos, upon his ascension to heaven, he was proclaimed king of the cosmos, we know that we don't see that in reality because we're, we're, we're stuck, if you will. We're stuck in time. We're stuck in, on the earth. And as we are here, we experience struggle and pain. There's moments when there's joy and laughter, of course, but there's also some heavy moments that sometimes you wonder, are the blissful moments winning or are the heavy moments winning? And you go like this. There's ups and downs in our experiences that we wonder, is there a better day coming? If, if you've got that question, let me remind you of two things. First, out of Isaiah 9. The passage of Scripture we read earlier, both last week and this week, where it says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government's going to be on his shoulders, and he has four, four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Can I remind you, that's already a historical fact. 740 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah says this is going to occur, and it does occur. There's plenty of evidence that points to the reality of Jesus Christ outside of Scripture. This child has been born, Jesus arrived, and the first part of Isaiah's prophecy is in place. And we wait for the second part. The king of, cos of the cosmos is what we expect in faith for the days to come because it says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There'll be no, it will be perpetual. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And how is this going to do this? God is going to do this. So the first of two responses is this. We choose faith. We say, since I can look back and see what Jesus has already done and his arrival already, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to believe in faith that that prophecy it's already half fulfilled. I'm just waiting for the second half to come along. So I wait for that in faith. And then secondly, I choose to trust. See, may I remind you of the timeline that I showed you a few minutes ago? This timeline that shows Jesus throughout history? What we have is a divine track record that 
provides us, if you will, with some daily support. In other words, this, uh, this Jesus, this son of David, this heir of David's throne, this king of the cosmos, this king of kings, this lord of all, this wonderful counsel, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, he is in control of history. He's in control of the cosmos. He's in control of what happened in the past, and he's in control of the future. He's in control of our present experience, and if you will, the future glory. From beginning of time throughout all of time, Jesus has been there. And I would like to be able to say to you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you can affirm this, that from the beginning of your commitment to Christ, moving forward throughout your entire life, whether it's been for a week or whether it's been a series of weeks upon weeks where it's now decades, you know what? If you've allowed Jesus Christ to be in charge of your life, you look back and you go, there's God's story of the past. I'm believing for the future. And as in faith I believe, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust it in the same way that, that Jesus has had control of history. He's got control of my life. As a matter of fact, I'd like to invite you to consider making that sort of statement in faith through the words of Scripture. So you're going to see some slides right now that are Scripture. I'm going to read through them once. And then if you'd like to join with me in proclaiming the scripture for your life, then let's see if we can do it together, okay? I'm going to invite you to read silently at first, whether you're in the East Auditorium, the West, online, and then we'll come back and read it out loud if you'd like to. In the past, this is what we read. God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We're gonna, you're, I'm going to invite you to make these statements right out of Scripture. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And what are we going to do based on all that? Based on what Jesus has already done, this is how we can live our lives. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the scripture. That's what you're invited to say and read along with me as a statement of faith and trust for the future. So, in the East Auditorium, in the West, and as at home as you feel comfortable, I'm inviting you to stand, and if you would like to make this statement with me, let's go back to the first slide we saw and read it together, okay? Let's read it out loud together. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in very ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what you've just done, friends, you have just proclaimed who Jesus is. You've proclaimed what he has done throughout history. You've proclaimed what he has done with his, with his life here on earth and his death and his resurrection. And based on that, now how are we going to live our lives? Let's read together. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this week, when the challenges of the first week of March 2021 really challenge you and really step into your life, you know what you say? Jesus has got this covered. I'm going to have to live it out. I'm the one who is going to run. I get that. But Jesus is in control. So to that end, can I pray for you today? Let's pray together. God, I pray for everyone here today. I pray, Lord, for those who are in the auditoriums on campus here. I pray, Lord, for those who are watching online, for our friends in Lovington who are gathering, Lord, for, for everybody. I pray, Lord, that through the work of your Holy Spirit, as we have made a declaration of faith of what we believe uh, Jesus occurred, Jesus did, and what has already occurred, Lord, those are the words of Scripture. Your word is powerful. It never comes back empty. It's, it's full of life. And based on what we believe, Lord, then we will be people this week. Through your power, God, we will step into the race in front of us. God, I'm so thankful that years before Jesus showed up, there was a king named David. And uh, his life influenced so many. And yes, Lord, the people of Israel lost all that, and they lost their power and their influence. And, but in the long run, God, you're the one who's in charge. So be in charge of our lives, we pray, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So while everybody remains standing, an observation I would have. If you'd like to get connected to this God named Jesus Christ and got, like to say, okay, I want him in charge of my life, you know, um, Christians have this Christianese language. We say he's the Savior. He's our Lord and Savior. A way to think about that, you, you, you could put it this way. He's your forgiver, he forgives your sins, and he leads your life. If you'd like to make him the forgiver of your life and the leader of your life, then we'd love to have a chat with you about that this week. And so you could, in the room, online, text the word Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, to the church's phone number, 217-875-3350. We would be glad to have a conversation with you. Or grab one of us if you're in the building yet today, and let's have that conversation. I'd look forward to that. In the meanwhile, we're in for a treat here um, across all the platforms of ministry that we have here today. And as Laurie's already mentioned, we have an arts academy in which uh, young people are learning how to express themselves through the various forms of art in aspects of worship and glorifying God, and uh, part of that is music. And so we, from time to time, would bring the kids on stage. During COVID, it's much more difficult and so, in light of that, what we did last Sunday night, we brought the teens' um, worship band into this auditorium, and we recorded them leading worship so they could lead us in worship. So, in every room, in every platform that we have, we're going to invite you to have the young people lead us in worship. Uh, we're used to now being led in worship through flat screens. And so, whether you're at the home, whether you're in the auditoriums, let's be people of worship and experience God's best coming through some of our young people leading us in worship before the Lord.